If you look at just practicing Christians, only about 13% of practicing Christians say they speak God about once a week. That means if you go to your average church, if only the faithful show up on that Sunday, about one in eight are having spiritual conversations with even modest frequency. That's shocking because we say we love God, we say we love faith, but we don't talk about faith. But we say we love our children and we talk about our children. We say we love our favorite sports team and we talk about our favorite sports team. We say we love our hobby or, uh, uh, you know, our house or our new car. And we talk about these things. So something's breaking down in between the thing that we love and the thing that we are articulating when it comes to faith. Hello, friends. This is episode 60 of the Spirituality for Ordinary People podcast. My name is Matt Bruff. I'm a pastor and an author and your host of this episode, which features an incredible interview with Jonathan Merritt. Uh, this You're going to love this one. This is so much fun. Uh, Jonathan is an award-winning writer on religion, culture, politics. If you don't follow him, um, I highly recommend going and uh, finding his website, just jonathanmerritt.com, and uh, following him right away. He serves as a contributing writer for The Atlantic and contributing editor for The Week. He's published more than 3,500 articles uh, in uh, places like The New York Times, USA Today, uh, BuzzFeed, Washington Post, Christianity Today, uh, regular contributor um, on TV and print, radio, um, and like all over the map. So like ABC, World News, NPR, CNN, PBS, MSNBC, Fox News, C- CBS is 60 Minutes. He's been on there. Um, and so just prolific uh, writer and um, uh, really kind of like a religious journalist approach. Um, he's got several books, but his latest book is called Learning to Speak God from Scratch, Why Sacred Words Are Vanishing and How We Can Revive Them. And in that book, he argues that uh, spiritual or religious language is fading from use. And uh, you're going to hear all about that in this interview. Um, so we get right into the book. Um, I should say as well that the day this podcast goes out, it's August 14th, 2018, and it is launch day for Jonathan's book. So um, if you are able to go and order a copy, if you haven't pre-ordered it already, uh, it really uh, helps out in that first week or so of release, but really just whenever. Um, it, I, as an author myself, I know that it really does help out um, spreading the word about books, and this is one of those books I think that Um, people should really take a close look at um, because it's just talking about um, this idea of uh, religious language dying in Western culture especially and then what it might mean for uh, religious and spiritual language to come back in a reimagined sort of way. So uh, this has the potential, I think, to be a really important book Um, And as you listen to this interview, I hope you get a sense for that um, and a sense for why this uh, is something that you should read, but maybe also once you've taken a look at that to start sharing that with other people um, and and give them an opportunity to take a look at this this book as well. So I've read through it and it's a brilliant book. I think, and uh, and it's and it's pretty accessible as well. Like really, anybody could read this, and um, 
and uh, glean an awful lot from it. Uh, so I highly recommend that. So we're going to get to that interview in just a minute. And um, But before we get there, uh, I wanted to encourage you, if uh, in particular if you're a regular listener of this podcast, uh, to please consider leaving a review on iTunes. And you may not be listening to this on iTunes, um, so I would uh, love it, even if you're not listening on iTunes, to try to find a way to do that. Um, because it helps others find the show. It helps others find podcasts when reviews are left there. Um, so the best way to do that is to get yourself into iTunes, um, either on uh, your iPhone or even in the podcasts app on the iPhone, you can do this. And you just search for the name of the podcast, Spirituality for Ordinary People. And when you find it, you can then, there's a place where it'll say add review or leave review, and you can tap on that or click on that, and then you can go ahead and give it to star rating and, and type a few words. And uh, thank you to those people who have already done that. Um, it's already helping others to find it, um, but the more people who go ahead and leave reviews, the more likely it is that this podcast will be found by others. Also, I wanted to acknowledge um, some people who have been faithfully supporting this podcast for uh, several months now, um, some maybe up to a year, and that is on a website called Patreon, and I've kind of been neglecting it a little bit in the last little while, um, yet there are still supporters there, uh, not too many of them, small group, but faithful, and uh, so if you're interested in knowing how you can support this podcast, and those are people who are supporting financially so that I can pay for things like the hosting, there's a hosting cost, and equipment costs for this. Um, if you go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Matthew Bruff, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-B-R-O-U-G-H. Uh, so just patreon.com slash Matthew Bruff. And that's my Patreon page. Uh, and you can actually leave, uh, you know, you can support the podcast financially. And then I've got on the, I think on the right hand side of that, that website, you will see, depending on what level you support at, uh, I might send you a book. So uh, yeah, you can head over there and, um, and support the podcast on a monthly basis. And that will really, really help out. It's already helped out. So I want to say a big thank you to those supporters. Um, that small group of supporters who are already on there and have kind of been doing this early adopters to uh, this idea. I really do appreciate that. So yeah, two things that I would love it if you consider doing, leaving a review and uh, maybe taking a look at that Patreon page and thinking about supporting this so that these episodes can continue into the future so we can have more amazing guests like Jonathan Merritt. Um, yeah, so this uh, interview, I think you're going to love it. Um, I was so excited to talk to Jonathan after uh, meeting him at the Festival of Faith and Writing uh, back in April of this year and had an opportunity to receive an early copy of his book, which was just great, uh, and heard him speak there as well. Uh, so yeah, I, I think you're going to love this one. And like I said before, I think it's it's quite an important book, an important subject to kind of think about what it means for religious language in our culture and in our lives and, and maybe to explore even for yourself something to think about is why maybe 
you don't speak about God or uh, use spiritual language in your everyday life um, because it's fading because we as people who might follow Jesus or who do believe or say faith is important to us uh, it's fading because we are the ones who are not using it Um, so how do we recover that Uh, is one of the big questions that we examine and that Jonathan examines in his book. So yeah, let's get to that interview because I know that's uh, what you are itching to listen to now. So here it is, uh, the interview with Jonathan Merritt. Uh, Today, it's great to have uh, Jonathan Merritt on the podcast. Uh, Welcome, Jonathan. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. It's my pleasure. Yeah, so today we're we're talking about uh, your book, Learning to Speak God from Scratch why sacred words are vanishing, and how we can revive them. And uh, in the book, you cite studies that show that religious language is being used today far less than a century ago, or maybe even less time than that. Um, And uh, I just want to read a a little section, which I think kind of puts this in perspective for the listeners here. Um, You wrote, one might expect meaty theological terms like atonement or sanctification to fade, but basic moral and religious words are also falling out of use. And then you write about words like love, patience, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, thankfulness, all being used around 50% less frequently than they used to. Um, so why is this a problem? And also, why is this happening? Why is uh, why are these words fading out of use? And, and, and why is that a big deal? Yeah, there are, there are a number of reasons why. And uh, I talk about that a little bit in the book when I conduct a a study with over a thousand Americans. And I begin to ask them, why don't you have these conversations more often? Why uh, aren't you speaking God? And some people say, well, you know, these words uh, have become very negative. So you think about a word like sin or hell or judgment. There are a lot of people probably even listening to this podcast who would say, yeah, that word, it's not, it's not a word that I, it would get a visceral reaction next to the water cooler. So I, I don't, it's not a word I'm going to use. It's become too negative. There are other words, and I think these are important words, and they're even positive words sometimes, a word like grace, mm-hmm. a word like gospel. And if you ask people, what does that word mean? It's hard for them to, to, to really give you a definition uh, they've used it a lot, and they sort of know intuitively what it means, but it's hard for them to explain what it means. And so there are words that have become so overused that they've fallen out uh, of, of use. So Dallas Willard once said that uh, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, and unfamiliarity breeds contempt. Uh, there are some people who say that, that, that this, these words have become politicized. They've heard them used by politicians. Some have said they've been hurt by these words. Others say that they make them sound weird or extremist and they're, uh, that they create tension. So there's a lot of reasons uh, for it. But the big question is, why does it matter? <clears throat> and it matters because, as I mentioned in the book, there is an emerging body of research in linguistics now that shows a connection between the words that we use or don't use and the thoughts that we think and the behaviors that we engage in. And so the less that we talk about grace, kindness, uh, God, the less that we think about 
grace, kindness, and God, the less our, the less our eyes uh, are tuned to transcendence, and, and then our, our behavior patterns, therefore, uh, are not uh, connected to those things. So, for example, if you see the way that individualistic language has increased while communal language has decreased, it's no wonder then that we live in an individualistic society. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think you do a great job of this in the book. So, I mean, really, like I say this on my podcast a lot when I'm interviewing authors, people should just go get the book and then then they would have these answers. <laughs> so, yeah, I, um, I, well, I, I yeah. endorse, I co-sign, I co-sign. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you cite Barbara Brown, Barbara Brown Taylor, um, where she wrote, God made us speech creatures, human beings, made in God's own likeness, which is to say capable of joining God in the work of creation by speaking things into being ourselves. And then you go on to say words are one of God's holy gifts to humanity and speaking them should be a sacred act. We drape our dreams in words. We paint murals of sorrow with them. They are humanity's carrier pigeons of information, of meaning, of emotion. We struggle to live without them. Uh, That's really great. Uh, I just wanted to say that's awesome language. And that comes from a chapter titled Our Divine Linguophile. In other words, God loves language. Um, And can you say a little more about the importance of language and words in the Bible or from sort of a Judeo-Christian perspective, why words and language are just important to God? Mm Yeah, there's a recounting uh, of kind of this pattern. It's a pattern that begins in the opening pages of the first chapter of Genesis, where God creates with words. And with words, God creates us uh, beings that use words to create worlds ourselves. Um, but it, it, it continues after that. And there's almost this unbroken pattern. As I started to look at it, I was sort of uh, surprised. I mean, one thing that, that I pointed out that was unique was you take a look at the Ten Commandments, and there's one about murder, and there's one about lying, and there's one about adultery. But God issues two commands when it comes to words. That God says, don't speak my name in vain, and uh, don't use your words to slander or to bear false witness uh, against someone else. It's interesting. It's interesting that uh, that that there are two commands there. That there's almost this heavier emphasis on like your words are super important. That there's something going on here that is that is sacred. And <clears throat> you find it goes on and on and on that the way that. The way that King David uses words releases uh, uh, sacredness in in the text. You hear a lot about words in the Proverbs. Uh, you the the, the prophets uh, are often saying that that uh, Israel will be judged by how they use or don't use words, and so uh, words become uh, a critical part of this message, and this message is carried forward by words. I mean, Walter Brueggemann said that Israel was, uh, they were a people of utterance, and there was an oral tradition before there was even a written tradition. Uh, And then, though, what's interesting is the New Testament carries this forward. 
Jesus says uh, in, in the synagogue of Nazareth, I've been anointed by God, I've been sent here to proclaim. Uh, the final command that Jesus gives is to go, therefore, unto all the world and speak God. Hmm. And so I think this is so fascinating. It was something I'd never seen before. You know, it's interesting. I was invited this year. I thought, I've seen everything that the Bible has to say about words and the importance of words. And uh, I was invited to speak in two churches. I'm going to go on this book tour. And these two churches, they preach from the lectionary. So I thought, oh, gosh, how am I going to do this? Because I'm supposed to be going and talking about my book, and, but I've got I've to preach the lectionary. Well, one of them, the verse was from 2 Corinthians, where Paul says, uh, as it is written, and he's quoting from the psalm, from a psalm, uh, a verse I'd never even seen. We believe, therefore, we have spoken. And he said, and therefore, since we have the same spirit, we too are faithful. We believe, and therefore, we speak. Uh, <clears throat> another verse uh, is, uh, was about words, too, and it's a, uh, it'll happen. I uh, wrote the first uh, sermon. I'm about to write the second sermon. But it's fascinating. It's like every time I turn around now. You know, it's like somebody tells you about a, a car that you've never heard of, and now you see the car everywhere. Now, everywhere I look in the text, I am seeing words, 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 and it seems to be that there is something unique and holy uh, about the words we use, and that message is echoing through the pages of the text. Yeah, and you return to this later in the book as well. It's near the beginning, but then later you talk about um, John chapter 1 um, and Jesus uh, being described as the word made flesh. Um, I don't know if you want to give that away. It's a, that's an excellent part of the book, um, talking about how maybe word is actually even too small of a word to use to to talk about what is being talked about in the Gospel of John. Maybe it was intended to be a larger kind of uh, a, a bigger kind of thing, even. Yeah, that that word that word in Greek. When we think of a word, we think of something static. Something mm-hmm. I say, it's from me to you. It has a universal meaning that you can find in the definite in the dictionary you can find its definition and uh, but that word in greek is never really used like that it's dynamic uh it is something that has uh that is that both the speaker and the audience are participating in and so the word correctly translated and in fact if you look i i cite uh, the ancient an ancient translator erasmus of rotterdam who actually made this shift in his early translation uh, is the word conversation, Mm -hmm. that God is a divine conversation and that God started that conversation with the creation of time and space and earth. And that's a conversation that uh, continues even until today. It is a holy conversation. It's one that we are invited into and and that that conversation itself is divine. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's so great. And and I think that's a good way into talking about, well, what is the way forward to reviving a robust language of faith? Because that's kind of what I think your book is actually trying to get at is how do we then shift from, how do we, it's right in the subtitle, how do we revive these sacred words? How do we do that? Yeah, it's so interesting because, uh, the 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 language of faith, the vocabulary of faith, is dying in the Western world. 
certainly in America. Uh, are you in Canada? Yeah. yeah. So in, in Canada, in, in, the, in, in, in North America, uh, in English-speaking countries, in the Western world, uh, it's dying. We see this through a massive decline in the usage of sacred words in, uh, in the English-speaking world since at least the 1950s. We see this also in the decline of spiritual conversations. So uh, only in the United States, uh, despite widespread religiosity, only about 7% of Americans say they have a spiritual conversation about once a week. If you look at just practicing Christians, only about 13% of practicing Christians say they speak God about once a week. That means if you go to your average church, if only the faithful show up on that Sunday, about one in eight are having spiritual conversations with even modest frequency. That's shocking because we say we love God. We say we love faith, but we don't talk about faith. But we say we love our children and we talk about our children. We say we love our favorite sports team and we talk about our favorite sports team. We say we love our hobby or uh, uh, you know, our house or our new car and we talk about these things. So something's breaking down in between the thing that we love and the thing that we are articulating when it comes to faith. Mm -hmm. And what I began to do was to look at dying languages. And I found these, these things called comeback languages. And comeback languages are languages that were moving to the brink and somehow came back to life. They, they, they were revived. Uh, obviously, uh, Hebrew is a great example of that. Uh, in my neighborhood here in New York, uh, in the south part of the neighborhood, Yiddish is a great mm -hmm. example of that. It's a language that's making a comeback, but there are other modern examples, Irish, Hawaiian. Uh, there are lots of languages that have been, been uh, revived in, in modern days. And uh, what I found was I began to look at these languages and say, what is the commonality? What's the thing that brings them back? One it is a renewed desire among speakers to use it. So people who speak this language have to say, I'm going to use it. Despite the problems, I'm going to use it. Despite my tensions, I'm going to use it. Despite it feeling awkward when I do, I'm going to use it. I'm going to create opportunities in my home, in my community to use it. And the other thing is, is that they have to be willing to take an imaginative approach that every language will either change or die. Every language, and linguists don't agree on much, but they agree on this, every language will track toward either evolution or extinction. And so there are a lot of people out there who say, well, I'm happy to use these words, but don't challenge what these words mean. Don't challenge the way we use them. Don't challenge the way we understand them. Don't challenge the pastor. Don't challenge the Sunday school teacher. Don't challenge my favorite author. And that's a, a very uh, a good way to destroy a language. Instead, we have to hold them with open hands and say, okay, what should these words mean in our day and for us? And so uh, what I'm arguing for in this book is a transformative approach to speaking God. And that is the only way that we will create an engine to revive the vocabulary of faith in the 21st century. Yeah, something that I liked as well is that you weren't necessarily recommending for people to, um, oh, just just start using these words more. Like, just just keep talking more. Like that you, 
at the very end of the book, you had a, a very short and simple process. And a lot of that process for people was really all like a, a reflection, um, reflecting mm. on how you understand those words and, and, and what, it, what you're going to mean when you speak them. Yeah. Um, and so I, I really thought that was important because I think people could, if you just say, well, just keep talking, it's hard to do anything with that. Yeah, like, do they and, need to and, do this process and, of reimagination? And what I what I hope to do there is not give people a new dictionary. You know, right. so so if people buy the book, they'll see. Like I I uh, I have these these essays uh, on mm-hmm. words like prayer, pain, disappointment, mm-hmm. sin and brokenness, grace, blessed, neighbor, spirit. Uh, these are words that we need to learn to use again. And what I'm doing in those is modeling what it would look like to reimagine them. So if people say, you know, Jonathan, that was a really cool essay on grace, but uh, I don't like the way that you reimagine that word. Okay, that, that's fine. I, I'm, I, this is an invitation for you to reimagine that word. I'm, I'm modeling what the process looks like, but I'm far more concerned with the questions I'm raising than the conclusions I'm coming to individually. So I hope to empower the reader that the reader would then gather with their friends and their neighbors and their children and their small groups, and they would begin to uh, revive sacred speech. And I'm far more concerned about the questions they're asking and the processes they're using to wrestle with the words than whether they understand these words the way I do. Right. Um, yeah. I, like I, I want to get into some of these words actually that you, that you look at. I think, uh, I think that essays, as you call them, do a great job of, uh, of kind of helping the reader come in and, and start to imagine uh, how, how they would use that word or understand that word. Um, so yeah, you you listed a bunch of them. It actually reminded me a lot of Kathleen Norris's Amazing Grace uh, vocabulary oh, of faith. Great book. And because um, because similar the thing few, to what she does. One of the few books, and in fact, I think uh, in I have a reading list in the back. Like, yeah, you do have uh, that one in there. I yeah. think I have Kathleen Norris in there. She yeah. was one of the books I read. Probably I was I was at a monastery. <laughs> Funny enough, I was at a monastery in upstate New York doing a silent retreat praying about whether I would write this book or not. And I took her book with me mm. randomly and I got lost in it. Yeah. And I thought, that's, this is, I have to do this. I have to mm. write this book. She's one of the, the, probably the three, four, five, it was Frederick Beekner, Kathleen Norris, uh, Barbara Brown Taylor's book, Speaking of Sin, mm-hmm. and maybe Marcus Borg's book on Speaking Christian that I was read all those books almost in order and thought, okay, this is a book, it, it, it has to be written, that they were all getting at something at a conversation uh, that the time has come to have. Yeah, yeah. I, those are all great. I, I need to read Marcus Borg's book because they referenced that a couple of times throughout the book as well. And it sounded really fascinating. And I haven't read that one. The others, though, I've read and they're, they're great. Um, so after people buy yours and read it, they can go and find those, um, yes. from your list. <laughs> um, so you have a whole bunch of, of words like, um, prayer, God, fall, sin, grace, blessed, neighbor, pride, saint, confession. Those are maybe words that people might sort of expect when we're talking about religious language, maybe not all of them, but, but lots of them fall in, in sort of religious kind of conversation. But then you also have 
the word yes. Mm-hmm. You have the word pain, disappointment, mystery, which I guess some feel that that's a religious word, but I think there's huge sections of Christianity that would say, what? Well, that's not a religious word. What the, that's about, uh, you know, Sherlock Holmes or something. Um, and then you have brokenness and you have family in there. So it, sort of these they're not necessarily what people would automatically just put in sacred speech. I thought that was kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'd love to talk about some of these, some of these words if we can and, Mm -hmm. and sort of how you understood uh, shifting or reimagining them. Um, I think the chapter on disappointment is absolutely brilliant. Um, So this is, and, and really connects, I think, what, what my podcast is about, um, which is spirituality for ordinary people. Um, so you wrote, many of us, perhaps tens of millions, have a common experience when it comes to spirituality. We expect God to be something and then discover that God is not like that, and not at all like that. Or we expect God to do something, only to realize that God seems to be preoccupied with other matters. In these moments, a tsunami of disappointment crashes down on us, wrecking the constructions of faith from the beachhead of our lives. And then you move from speaking of disappointment to claiming the word disillusionment as part of a spiritual vocabulary, and even stating that disillusionment is a gift. So I want to ask you about making that move and why that move is important to go from this idea of disappointment to disillusionment and why that's a good thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think what we often call disappointment, and from our perspective, it is disappointment, is actually disillusionment. And disappointment, you know, is means it wasn't appointed. It shouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, Disillusionment is it focuses less on whether it should or shouldn't have happened and it gets to what actually did happen within us, that there was a loss of illusion. And so what happens when we're disappointed is, is that we place expectations on someone or something. You know, if, I, I, if, if you're disappointed in your coworker, it means you expected them to do something and they didn't do it, or you expected them not to do something they did. And what that tells you is actually that, that maybe your expectations were off. So, for example, I ground this in, um, in uh, the, ser- the, the, the story in the New Testament of Jesus on Palm Sunday. He's riding into the city. They're waving the palm branches. And I use the science of disappointment, what's happening with the dopamine and in our brains when we create expectations and try to unfold out of the story what's happening, that that they're seeing uh, in Jesus all these markers of something they've seen before. And they begin to place expectations on him. That's why they're saying, Hosanna, Lord, save now. They're expecting Jesus to come in and to liberate them from this Roman uh, oppressor. And what Jesus says is, is I'm going to liberate you, but not in the way you think. So yeah, they're disappointed from one perspective, but really they're disillusioned. That the, the illusion that they've come to believe, that God is a certain way, they are disabused of that. They, they, they are, that, that illusion is replaced with the truth about who God really is, who Jesus really is. And it is a gift 
when we are disillusioned, because now we can live with reality the way it is. You know, I've often said, <clears throat> if you know anything about me, I'm not a huge Donald Trump fan. <laughs> but the election of Donald Trump in many ways was a gift. We have now been disillusioned that I remember when uh, Barack Obama was elected and people said, look, we li we're living in a post-racial age. And of course, now we've got white supremacists and neo-Nazis, and we realize that was an illusion that we thought was true. But the veil is now torn down, and we see the truth. We have been disillusioned of this post-racial nonsense, and now we know the reality is, is, that, is that the cancer of racism is still growing within us. And that is a gift because we can deal with reality as it is. We, can, we no longer have to live uh, this lie. And so uh, what we look for, I think, in times of disappointment is to transform that where God says, no, 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 disappointment is not what this is about. This is about disillusionment. So what I'm trying to do is, is to reimagine that word uh, disappointment as something different, as something really quite redemptive, something really quite helpful that the scales would fall off of our eyes and we would see the world as it is. I, I think that's great. I think it's also really, really challenging, um, like very difficult for, for people to kind of uh, get their heads around, and particularly if they're, if they're dealing with something really painful or difficult. Um, you quote C.S. Lewis around that, um, where he talks, uh, wrote in The Problem of Pain, and this is, I thought this was great, including this quote, because I hear people quote this quote all the time. Um, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our, con in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is our megaphone to rouse a, a deaf world. Um, and then you wrote, it sounds beautiful, but it's not all that comforting. And you remind the reader that he, uh, that C.S. Lewis later in life wrote a grief observed, which I don't think people quote from very much <laughs> um, and uh, and talks about how he felt in danger, uh, didn't feel in danger of stopping believing in God, but just uh, maybe believing, oh my goodness, God might not be good or might not be what I hoped God would be. And uh, so I thought that was that was really great to kind of tackle that problem because I think people when they're in a painful moment or something difficult. I don't think C.S. Lewis, when he wrote the first, when, when the first quote was there, I don't think he dealt with something as painful as, as the loss of his wife that he was talking about in, in A Grief Observed. Um, and so when, when the rubber really hits the road, then what does that mean for our understanding of who God is and who we are as human beings? Um, so I don't know, it, it, do you have a response to any of that or how do we... Yeah, I mean, what I what in disillusionment when it's really painful. Yeah, I think I think what that what that tells us is um, that we've we have misdiagnosed the greatest threat to faith. Uh, you know, we've made doubt uh, a dirty word. If I were writing volume two of this, doubt would probably be one of those. Hmm. Yeah. Um, we we say, well, you have to get rid of doubt. And actually, uh, doubt is, is a good and I would say even necessary part. Uh, Anne Lamott has a very famous quote about um, uh, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Mm -hmm. And so 
what I'm getting at here, and it's what Lewis is, is getting at later in life, you can see his growth, his trajectory, yeah. uh, here is saying that the big threat to faith is not doubting God, but being disappointed with God. So having an expectation and having that expectation torn down, I, I can trust even if I'm doubting so long as I'm confident. Mm-hmm. But what I can't trust is saying, well, I've, I expected you to be this way, and now you've shown you're not this way. You've disappointed me. How can I trust again? How can I rebuild expectations? Because if I, if I did that last time and you tore them down, what do I do now? I can never trust again. And if you cannot trust someone, you cannot have a relationship with someone. And so it's learning to manage what we call disappointments, to see them as disillusionments that will actually sustain faith over the lifetime. Mm. Yeah, so it's kind of like coming to a place of, of, of this has happened and then, and then being disappointed. You probably are going to be disappointed. But then coming to a place of saying, oh, this, the way I thought things were is not actually the way things are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think that's just super helpful. Um, but, it, but it, to pretend that that's an easy move, like it's not an easy move. Um, so mm-hmm. I think that's important for people to know and, and realize that, okay, like it's okay to be angry or upset or disappointed. And it's not as though, and it's not as though in your chapter, you're mapping out, here's a path for you through, through this difficult moment. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to look different for, for different people. But anyway, I thought that was an excellent, fantastic essay. Um, and, and really brilliant. Um, I wanted to ask you too about the word blessed. I think that's the one right after that was just a great part of the book. Um, or it's close. Oh, maybe not. Uh, blessed. How, and, and then you have these little subtitles for each, um, for each chapter, which are kind of fun, especially this one, uh, blessed hollow hashtags and marble toilets. I thought that was a great subtitle. <laughs> um, <laughs> So how have we misused the word blessed? And you could probably, we're not going to be here all day, but this could be a really long one. Yeah, this is, uh, I talk here about how our modern conceptions of the word blessed first have been trivialized by social media in large part that we hashtag it, hashtag blessed. I got a new car. I got a new Lexus, hashtag blessed. Um, you know, I won the lottery, hashtag blessed. I got a raise at work, hashtag blessed. And that's a hard thing because people who are not wealthy or lucky or privileged often feel that God uh, doesn't have much favor for them. Uh, additionally, I use a lot of the prosperity gospel preachers to talk about this. You know, that's where the marble toilet comes from. You have to read the book to find out uh, where the marble toilet is. It's a, there's a $23,000 marble toilet mentioned in this. Uh, so there's, uh, that, that's, that is problematic. Uh, and I talk about uh, my friend Kate Bowler, who some maybe know her book, <clears throat> who was one of the experts, the, the world experts in the American prosperity gospel. She wrote a book on it. And following writing that book was diagnosed with stage four cancer and said, am, am I not hashtag blessed? Uh, so I think we have to begin to reimagine what blessed should mean. And, and so I ask in the book, what if we began to think about blessings as 
immaterial and internal rather than material and external? What if we began to think about them as spiritual and supernatural rather than uh, in terms of uh, financial uh, and favorability uh, or privilege? And uh, it's difficult thinking about being hashtag blessed when you think about Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, how many people do you know that would say, man, I was just humbled by my college professor hashtag blessed. Man, uh, I was just, uh, my pride was just totally destroyed and wiped out. I just lost my job. I was just persecuted. I'm so blessed. Nobody would say that. That's not the way we use that word, and yet that's the way Jesus uses that word. And I'm wondering if that word needs a little bit of a home renovation uh, in modern times. And uh, I think it does. I make my best case for it in that chapter. Yeah, it's uh, it's for sure been I think I think misused and and immediately when you start thinking about you know people saying oh I got a new Lexus hashtag blessed um, you know for me I just immediately start thinking of Matthew five right oh really like I don't I don't know that that's what Jesus was saying um, I do like as well that you you point to some original meaning of uh, blessing something about bending the knee was that. Mm-hmm. That around blessing. Yeah, that's that's the that's mm-hmm. the word. That's the original meaning of the word to bend the knee, and so it's 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 uh, it's an adoration. There's a humility. Yeah. Normally, when people say when they use the word blessed today, it's like, oh God, how good is God, or how good is life? But there's this subtle, how good am I that I deserved, or that I got this. Uh, or how good is my life? And I think if you sort of trace back that that word in its early in some of its early conception, you find it was very different than that. It was rooted in a, an awe, a wonder, a humility of the divine, and that's been lost. And mm-hmm. I think I'm wondering in the book whether we need to recover that. Well, and I think if you go back into the Old Testament, blessing is something that is conferred right from from usually from an elder to a younger. So you think about, uh, you know, Abraham passing on blessing to his sons um, or even, you know, stories of tricking somebody into blessing you. Um, and we don't, we just don't have that. That's just not part of our, our imagination anymore of thinking mm-hmm. of blessing in that way. Um, so, yeah, it's, it, I think that is one that just really is in need of, of, of thinking through. And I think, it's it's nice to just raise that for people and realize, oh yeah, how am I using that word? Um, it's interesting to me as well how many times you and I think preachers do this all the time as well. I know I do this in my preaching. I actually go back to try to uncover well, what did this word mean, uh, either in the Greek or the Hebrew, or what did this mean in another time? Even it might not even be going back to scripture, but it might be, you know, what was a translation in you know, a thousand years ago, or how did, how were people using this word then to try to get, inject some new meaning into it for today? Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if you have a comment about that, this, this process of kind of going back to try to uncover old meanings and then, and then have a sense for what that might mean. Uh, I mean, I, I think that's so helpful to understand what the word meant 
But I think what we need to get away from is this sort of uh, immutable, fixed, universal meaning of a word. First of all, uh, despite the fact that, that pastors will often tell you, here's what the word originally meant. Right. <laughs> uh, it's almost impossible, linguists will say, to trace that back. And even if you do, you end up finding that's sort of a dominant meaning, but yeah. not the total meaning. Uh, and it's just almost impossible to find the, quote, original meaning of words. Um, and that's mind-bending for some people, because they'll just say, oh, that's not true. I, I went to seminary. I have a Greek lexicon. Well, I understand that. Like the person who wrote that lexicon was operating on a false notion that there is an original meaning and that you can find out what it is. If you, if you look also, the other thing is, is when people say this is the way it was used in the Bible, mm-hmm. uh, at which point, you know, I yeah. use the word sin, for example, I talk about the three dominant meanings. There was the early Jewish, the later Jewish, and then, of course, the New Testament, predominant way that it's talked about in the New Testament. In the New Testament, for example, well, if you go back to the late, the, the kind of um, the way it was used in uh, Temple Judaism, you find that sin was uh, a weight that was placed on your shoulders, and it was a communal weight. Uh, so it was a heaviness. All of the sins together made a heavy burden placed on us. So you had the scapegoat, and you would the priest would put his hands on the scapegoat and they would run it out of town. They would say, okay, look at that. The sin, the weight has been lifted off of us and it will slowly descend back on us. Then we do it again. Uh, you don't really find that in the New Testament, that conception of sin. Instead, uh, by the time the New Testament arises, sin has morphed in meaning to be uh, uh, thought of in sort of almost early economic terms. Uh, it was a debt. And so you hear, you hear phrases like, the wages of sin is death. I mean, that would have been an, 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 uh, an, a notion that would have been totally foreign to uh, Temple Judaism. And yet, here we have it. Uh, there, because there's a sin debt, there's some way to sort of even the score. Uh, you find that, these, that good works can sort of, Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven which is sort of a natural extension of this new way of thinking about sin. And there are new ways of conceiving of sin in early Christianity. Uh, Even today, we think about, we talk about your sin problem. That was not a, not a New Testament concept. You know, you have one, you have a problem and your problem is sin. That's a new conception of sin. Now, the question is, is which one is right? And the answer is yes, that every way of conceiving of sin, there is sort of getting at something. So I talk about in the book, C.S. Lewis, he wrote this really fun academic work that most people don't read called Studies in Words. And he talks about words like a tree, that there's kind of this trunk, which is this meaning that arose a long time ago. And then there are these new sprouts that, that kind of come off, these branches that grow over time. And they're all connected to kind of the same thing, right? So sin is kind of connected to like, what went wrong or what prevents us from living the abundant life. But there are multiple ways that we can talk about and think about sin as time progresses, as new needs present themselves. And so our job uh, as modern Christians is to be the pruners of that tree, Hmm. that we would bring new meanings 
into the world. And sometimes I think that means discovering old meanings that have been lost that really could help us right now. So should we go back and recover an ancient meaning? Yes. Should we come, uh, should we dream about new meanings of words? Yes. Yes. All those things uh, are very important. And you'll see if, if you read this, I encourage that. I'll talk about the way that, that these words were used in the Bible. I'll talk about the, the, the meanings of these words in, in, the, in the modern English language. And I'll often even imagine meanings of the word uh, that are not dominant uh, in modern day that I think we should, we should explore. Mm. Time has just flown. Um, so <laughs> I, thank you so much for doing this. This has been such a great conversation. And I know you've got another conversation that you need to get to. Um, so I really appreciate this, Jonathan. Thanks uh, so much. Oh, for being on the show. This, has been, this has been my pleasure and it's been a lot of fun. And uh, thank you. Thank you for taking the time and, and hearing my words and uh, reading this book and listening to it. I do think it is the most important work most important book I've ever written by far. And it's funny, I, I'd written uh, three books by the time I was 30. And I thought, I have not, well, how much wisdom does a 30-year-old have? And I said, I am not going to write a book until I feel I have a message so important that the world needs me to write it. And uh, it was, as I tell the story, it was this process of moving to New York City from the Bible Belt and experiencing this myself, that I said, okay, it's time to pick up the pen. It had been five and a half years from the last time I wrote, I published a book till this time. And I said, it's time to pick up the pen and write this. And I hope people, when they read this, will say, man, this is a conversation we need to be having. Yeah, I, I'm sure people are going to do that. So I think it's going to be great. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You can always go to spiritualityforordinarypeople.com and you can find all of the old episodes and all of the show notes for those episodes. Also, you can find the podcast on iTunes and I would love it if you could leave a review there. That means so much to me and it helps the podcast become more visible so that others can find these interviews. Thanks again for listening. Take care.